Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is the first of a mini series of podcasts looking back at the legacy of 1989 and looking forward at how it will shape our world in the decades to come. I am joined by Professor Timothy Gardner-Ash, who is in fact the person through whose eyes many Westerners experienced the events of 1989. And his book, The Magic Lantern, originally published as We the People, was an extraordinary first-person account of the excitement of these velvet revolutions which swept across the continent. And he's just reissued that book for the 30th anniversary of the revolutions with an afterword where he looks at what went right and what went wrong in 1989. So, Tim, it's wonderful that you're here with us today. Maybe we can just start with that question. What does, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, what does 1989 mean? So it's great to be here, Mark. I will be in Berlin next week and then in Prague and Bratislava, and I will be celebrating because 1989 was, with all the problems that have followed, probably the greatest triumph for freedom, for democracy, for Europe and the West that any of us are likely to experience. I would argue 1989 was the best year in European history. I challenge you to name a better one. So... There's still a huge amount to celebrate, particularly in Central Europe, in countries like Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, because they actually did make successful, broadly speaking, transitions to democracy. People there, even in countries which are now plagued by populism, live longer. Life expectancy in most of these countries has increased somewhere between four and ten years. That's a very interesting industry, unlike in Russia, and have many more life chances. I mean, the life chances of a young Pole today are pretty similar to those of a young Brit. Before 1989, we were in completely different worlds. So that's all the good news. And post-Brexit, they might even be better. Uh, They will be better. (laughs) They will be better. I mean, it's exactly... I say to my Polish friends, you know, I think we helped you a bit in getting into the EU. Will you help us if we apply to rejoin? Um, But on the 10th anniversary in 1999, it was a tremendous celebration. I remember I interviewed Gorbachev, Cole, and George Bush Sr. in Berlin. And it was a fantastic celebration, we thought. On the 20th anniversary... You know, the Baltic states, Bulgaria, Romania, as well as the Central European countries had come into both the EU and NATO. So there was also a great sense of of celebration. 30 years on, the question we're all asking is what went wrong? I would argue that Hungary today is no longer a democracy. A bold claim, but I'm prepared to defend it. Freedom House has downgraded Hungary to partly free. Poland is an illiberal democracy, which is a liberal democracy in decay. So we have to ask this what went wrong problem. And part of my answer is that actually, because communism was a revolutionary force, which destroyed so much, which destroyed private property, which eliminated capital, which destroyed all independent institutions, independent courts, 
democratic institutions, civil society, the task of transition, of getting from there to democracy, was always an incredibly difficult one. In the book, you use this wonderful metaphor about we know how to turn an aquarium into fish soup, the fish tank into fish soup, but can we turn the The fish fish soup back back into into an aquarium, aquarium. which is a joke from the time, (laughs) which gets it perfectly. And so it was always going to be difficult. So if you say, why, you know, are the independent courts and democratic institutions standing up less well in Poland or Hungary than they are in Britain and America? The answer is because we had them for 300 years and they've had them for 30. And then there was a whole complex of things about how you made a market economy. You didn't have private property, you had to create it fast, so you privatized rapidly and it was a very corrupt process. And a lot of the spoils went to former members of the communist elite, right? So all populisms have a resentment of inequality, a concern about inequality. The unique element here was that the people who got rich quick were often members of the former communist elite, okay? So in addition to the resentment of some being rich and some being poor, there's a sense of historical injustice. In short, I don't think it's because these countries are reverting to their sort of natural form as being exotic, barbarian, oriental, authoritarian places. That's nonsense. That's, you know, cheap Samuel Huntington, what I call vulgar Huntingtonism. But I think it's populism with post-communist characteristics. But one of the... One of the yeah, I mean, you're very eloquent in the... In the afterward, where you say, you know, how absurd it is to think that Frankfurt should be somehow more Western than Goethe's, not that, yeah, than, yeah, yes, yes, exactly. But what is also surprising, maybe even more surprising, is that the West should be going for an even more radical version of this than than some of these Eastern European. So you have an interesting kind of mirroring effect going on. So. Basically, there are two, if you read the the media, there are two explanations, (laughs) crudely speaking, of what's going on in Poland or Hungary, the Kaczynskis and the Orbans. One is, it's because they're part of the West, and the other is because they're part of the East. These two things cannot be true simultaneously, (laughs) right? You cannot be simultaneously black and white. But there's an element of that. So there are these peculiar features, which come mainly from post-communism and the transition, right? Uh, the, the fish soup back into aquarium problem. But then there are all these generic features. And I think back to a conversation with my old friend, the anti-communist dissident, heroic figure, Jacek Kuron, in the mid-1980s. And I was complaining to him about the impact of Thatcherism on British society. And he looked at me, drank another glass of whiskey, and said, if only we had your problems. And now they do. <laughs> So one of the wonderful things about the original book is that lots of people met this extraordinary generation of dissidents who then went on to run uh, the Czech Republic and Poland. Um, And then in the afterward, you go back and you meet some of those people. Obviously, a lot of them are no longer with us, unfortunately. They're um, 30 years on. I mean, if you look back at, at, at that generation of people, how do you sort of feel about their role now, 30 years on? So I have a 
several friends who are slightly older than me and their great political causes were things like Cambodia, so the Khmer Rouge. And when they look back 30 years later, they feel quite uncomfortable because the guy they were supporting against the United States was Pol Pot. When I look back 30 years later, the people I was supporting was Václav Havel, uh, Adam Michnik, Bronisław Geremek, Janusz Kisz. And I still feel pretty proud of what they did. But I was lucky, because political romanticism, youthful <laughs> political romanticism is a dangerous thing, and I could have attached my enthusiasm to you know, the Sandinistas or the Khmer Rouge. But one has to acknowledge that they didn't get everything right. Yeah. And uh, my dear friend Adam Michnik said famously when asked about his attitude to inequality in Poland after shock therapy and the transition to a market economy, he said, my heart is on the left, but my purse is on the right. <laughs> now, I have to say to the people, the unemployed workers, the people in the small towns and the Polish countryside, the heart on the left was not very visible. In other words, one of the things that went wrong is that all of our, my friends, my liberal pro-European friends, stayed in the big cities, spent their time traveling around the west of Europe, and in a sense turned their backs to some extent on the other half of their own societies, who felt not only economic inequality, but what I call the inequality of attention and respect which I think is just as important. And then the populists come along and they say, we see you, we feel your pain, we're going to give you welfare benefits, and it's not just economic, it's also showing you that we care, that we're giving you recognition. And law and justice in Poland has this fascinating concept, which is the redistribution of dignity. Yeah. And I think that's a very telling phrase. And I think in a way, you know, Mark, that's a mistake we liberal, European liberal internationalists made more broadly. We were so busy paying attention to the other half of the world that we didn't pay enough attention to the other half of our own societies. But one of the other very interesting things which law and justice and other people do is they complain that the revolutions were a bit too velvet. So the Polish prime minister, for example, his father... <laughs> set up a party which was against the round table and their idea was that post-communist period should be much more post-communist than it's been. And how does that fit into your picture? So these, what was amazing about 1989 was that they actually produced a new model of revolution. Until 1989, the intrinsic to the definition of revolution was that it was a violent process, yeah. as in 1789 and 1917. And through a learning process, through 56 and 68 and 81, they got to the point where you had a new model of self-limiting, peaceful revolution, the, the genus velvet revolution. Now, if you do that, you can't then turn around and lock up the old power holders, let alone hang them from lamppers, which is what revolutions traditionally did. Except so, in Romania. 
which was the one example which wasn't a velvet revolution yeah. and ironically was the least fundamental transformation of all <laughs> because it was a kind of you know, stitch-up. So Ernest Gelmar, the great Czech-born uh, social anthropologist, talked about the price of velvet. And the price of velvet is that you have to make these morally distasteful compromises. That leaves you with the problem that people feel this wasn't really a revolution, there's a lack of catharsis. I talked about this a lot of the time with people, with friends in the region, and my answer is, if you do a velvet revolution, make a truth commission. Have some public symbolic confrontation with the past, which makes people feel that you put the bad old past behind you and there's a sharp line between the past and the future. And I think that is actually one of the great mistakes they, 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 they made. And that's but, what Orban and Kaczynski and that's, that's say what they're what now doing. The Law and Justice is the only party I know which has its origins in a museum, the Museum of the History of the Warsaw Uprising, which told an alternative history of Poland. And the, the, what, what in Poland is called Politica Historyczna, roughly the politics of memory, is absolutely core to Law and Justice. They say... This wasn't a revolution in 1989, it was a corrupt deal between basically communists and former communists done behind closed doors, a handshake transition, and the real revolution begins now when we come to power. And that's very appealing to people who have this sense of, of the lack of catharsis and, 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 and of historical injustice. But it's interesting how in East Germany, for example, you have this very powerful sort of ostalgie where people, it's almost the opposite. Well, I mean, dynamics. So, but East Germany is such a peculiar case because, of course, they did have a very, very systematic public confrontation with the past. You had something called the Enquete Commission, which was a truth commission. You had the opening of the Stasi archives. The Germans were going to get it absolutely right this time. <laughs> Second time round, we're going to get it absolutely <laughs> right. The trouble is that it then came to be seen by East Germans as victors' justice. Yeah. The victors being, in this case, the West Germans. So West Germany, Germany in a curious way, has produced a new phenomenon, which is what I call colonialism in one country, with the West Germans behaving in East Germany like sort of British district commissioners <laughs> in 1920s India. And... So you have this amazing phenomenon that although people in East Germany know that they're economically much better off, they still feel that they're being treated like second-class citizens. So they vote the same redistribution of dignity. (laughs) So they vote, and this is marked so shocking, in the three most recent Lund provincial elections, Saxony, Brandenburg, and last Sunday, Thuringia, one in four voters voted for the Alternative für Deutschland, AfD, a genuinely far-right, xenophobic party. And then the second most popular party were the former communists. It's, uh, it's exactly, and Die Linke, which yeah. are within Thuringia. But, but, and, and there was a fascinating poll in Saxony which said 75% of people asked said Saxony is doing well economically. 66%, two-thirds, say East Germans are treated as second-class citizens. Don't tell me it's the economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid, it's the culture stupid. Yeah. 
But I mean, that was the amazing thing also, because in the book, you look at a lot of the echoes from 1989. And one of the most extraordinary things for many people were the demonstrations last year in East Germany, where people were taking to the streets and saying, you know, visions us folk, which was the the slogan which many of them used (laughs) against the communists, but they were... um, redirecting it against Angela Merkel and her treatment of refugees. And, and the other thing is, because I, I, I mentioned on this, but I think it's important in the wider European context, how can you have, and this is true of the whole region, how can you have a party which is built on an anti-immigration rhetoric when the true problem of East Germany, as of Poland and Hungary and elsewhere, is emigration? So the Berlin Wall was built to prevent people leaving the hemorrhage of people. As soon as the wall came down, the hemorrhage started again. The figures are astonishing. Nearly 2 million out of a population of less than 17 million have left since the wall came down. We are back to the population level of 1905. In East Germany. In East Germany. In the the territory, we should say, that was East Germany. And yet it's all about the anti-immigration rhetoric. Yeah. And, and is even more extreme in a lot of the other countries. I mean, in, in, you have a passage in the in your afterward where you talk about one in five Bulgarians, twenty seven percent in Latvia, three million yeah, yeah, Romanians, yeah, yeah. and and in fact, look at the irony of you know, thirty years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Romanian finance minister saying that people should Romanians should not be allowed to, to leave the country he, he for more said, than five he years. Said he was so worried about the brain drain which is just so spectacular, he, he suggested that Romanians should only be allowed to work in the rest of the EU for a five-year period. Him suggesting that, not Nigel Farage, yeah. was immediately slammed, slapped down, of course. But we did polling last year and found that a majority of people in Poland, in Hungary, in Romania, in Greece in Italy and in Spain actually agreed with his proposal, which is extraordinary. Absolutely. And so you have, you know, the one universal law of history is the law of unintended consequences. Half Europeans, 50% roughly, consistently, when asked, what do you most value about the EU, say, the freedom to travel, work, study, and live in other EU countries, right? So that's something people most value, and yet arguably it's the biggest problem of the region, right? And, you know, our mutual friend Ivan Krastap has an image of this. It is a kind of demographic panic that results from the fact that you feel your country is being evacuated, literally depopulated, and so you're afraid of the other people. Well, the last Bulgarians switch out the lights before they... Well, exactly, before the the Muslims take over, quote-unquote, unquote, I hasten to add. There's also, and this is important because we're talking for the European Council on Foreign Relations, there's an elite version of that, which is because we have given a lot of power to European institutions, including the European Parliament, the Europeans in the elite, the people who are knowledgeable about and enthusiastic for Europe, go to Europe. Well, we've now seen Donald Tusk as a, as a ref- and, and Radek Sikorsky as political refugees and, 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 and one could in one institutions. And, and in all these countries, I and mean, actually I think it's true in our own country too, but in all these countries, if you take 500 of the most knowledgeable pro-European people 
out of the national politics and debate and put them in Brussels, yeah. that, really, that really weakens the pro-European side, right? Yeah. So again, it's a law of unintended consequences. So what do you think is going to happen next? Because you, you were saying that 1989 was the greatest year in European history and things look pretty great in 1999. 2009, you were still feeling that history was, uh, the arc of history was bending in, in, uh, in a kind of liberal direction. How much of what's going on is a temporary blip related to, you know, the global financial crisis, the refugee crisis, the euro crisis? Or was it just a moment? I mean, Ivan talks, in fact, maybe you even used this idea that the intramural period, that you have this period between walls, <laughs> between taking walls down and building walls. So it's definitely not a blip. If you, if you step back as a historian and look back over the centuries, revolutions are always followed by one version or other of counter-revolution, the reformation by the counter-reformation, we have had what one could loosely call a quarter century of liberal revolution. It's unsurprising that you have an anti-liberal yeah. counter-revolution. And because of the way in which liberalism has been reduced to the one dimension of economics, the one dimensionalization, the economization of liberalism, there's a lot of power behind this counter-wave. And so I'm absolutely persuaded that it's not going to be over you know, next month or next year, that there's a lot of force still behind See, we have away. another generation. Well, yes, but remember that the mistake we made after 89 was not that we celebrated as a great triumph, because it was the mistake we made was to believe, to come to believe, and this is a mistake mainly of the 2000s, that this is the new normal the way things are going, the way history, the direction history is travelling. That was a mistake. Yeah. What we shouldn't do now is to make the same mistake the other way round and believe we now know the way of the history is travelling and its history is travelling the other direction. The truth is we don't know the way history is travelling. I'm optimistic about the region. I think the forces, what you're seeing now is, you now being knowing Germany very well may know that Goethe has a wonderful... Uh, aphorism, in which he says, what you've inherited from your ancestors, from your fathers, erwirb es um es zu besitzen, he says. So you must make it your own in order to, to, for it to be yours. This is what we're now seeing in East Central Europe. There is the development in Poland of a constitutional patriotism. People in Demos. I had a demo in Krakow the other day where people were saying, triple separation of powers, triple separation of powers. What do we want? Triple separation of powers. When do we want it now? I mean, that's amazing. You know, Lech Wałęsa walking around with a T-shirt that says Constitution. So that actually what I think is happening, this is the good news, is that people are, are standing up to defend liberal constitutional government not because it's what they have in the West and the West is rich and we want to be like them, not because it's what they have in the European Union and we have to do it in order to join the European Union, but because we actually want to stand up for it, we actually want to defend it. So if it were up to the regional dynamics, I would be cautiously optimistic that in 10 years' time they'd be in a better place. The trouble is, as you know very well, that the other great product of 1989 was the China we have today. 
The China we have today is as much a product of 1989 as the fragile democracies of Central and Eastern Europe, and they learned the lessons of communism's collapse in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And so we have a Leninist capitalist China, which is a very powerful force. We have the global challenge of climate change, and we have the digital revolution now moving on from the internet and AI. And I think the future of the liberal democratic world, not just in Europe, is going to depend on what answers we find to those giant global challenges more than on the local dynamics in, in Central Europe or even in Europe as a whole. You mentioned before the book by Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes, um, The Light That Failed. It's a self-conscious... I mean, they took the title from a Kipling poem, but it's obviously it's also echoing yeah. the, the Crossman book. And they say it actually, you know, 30 years on from 1989, it's actually liberalism is the god that failed rather than yes. communism. So, of course, they, they play with the overstatement. And then, if you notice, it, the very last paragraph of the book, it's they then contradict the title <laughs> and say that a quote-unquote chastised liberalism is actually still the political ideology best suited to the 21st century. So they don't actually think it's a god that failed, and nor do I think it's a god that failed. So in that sense, I think it's a massive overstatement. And actually, Ivan, we were just talking, and pretty much agrees with me. It's a legitimate thing to do in a book, to provoke debate. But what I do think is that our big mistake, particularly in post-communist Europe, but in, more broadly was to reduce liberalism to the one dimension of economic liberalism. Sometimes called neoliberalism, I can live with the term, but it's a one-dimensional reduction of liberalism that was a key problem, right? Uh, and, but that gives hope for liberalism, because it wasn't a genuine three-dimensional liberalism that failed. But in many cases, it's actually the political dimensions of, of liberalism, or maybe a certain idea of liberalism, which are most pushed back against, not just by Orban and Kaczynski, but, you know, in Poland they talk about genderism, I think, as a, as a kind of multiculturalism, yeah. LGBT... But, but that's peril. because liberals, liberals only talked about the economy and modernity and joining the European West, right? So the classic, one of the most brilliant analysis of the problem comes from the great French analyst of international relations, Pierre Asner, former member of the European Council, who in 1991 said, I quote, As we celebrate the triumph of universality and liberty, we should not forget that the yearnings that gave us nationalism and socialism, namely the yearning for community and identity on the one side, and for solidarity and equality on the other, have not disappeared. And that is the most brilliant summary of what went wrong, that we neglected the yearning for solidarity and equality. And in the levels of inequality we've come to accept are just absolutely shocking, and the lack of social solidarity, and the yearning for community and identity. And that's where the populace came in. But that does mean that you're advocating a, a post-liberal politics? Not at all, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm advocating and thinking every day about a rejuvenated liberalism, a liberalism that takes account. I mean, remember that Ronnie Dworkin, Ronald Dworkin, the great American liberal philosopher, said that the, as it were, defining condition of a modern egalitarian liberalism is 
equal respect and concern for all members of a given political society. Equal respect and concern. And that's what we lost, was the equal respect and concern. I mean, the, the angry voters in the post-industrial towns of the north of England, or the angry voters in the small towns of southeast Poland, were absolutely justified in saying they didn't have equal respect and concern. But their yearning for identity is not about individual liberty. It's about group identities. Well, and it's about, that is the, the opposite of liberalism, which sees a, the not, not individual all. as the kind of core. No, not at all. That's a simplistic view of liberalism. Of course, liberalism involves a, a philosophy of individual choice and autonomy. So it, it has a strong element of individualism. But the great liberal writers like Tocqueville or John Stuart Mill always saw individual citizens in a wider context, political, legal, and cultural context. But right? the moral core of liberalism is the defense of the individual against the, against the mob rather than seeing rights for these different groups right, against, but, against deviant so, individuals. So, so, so what is French republicanism than an immensely powerful, emotionally appealing identity based on equal citizenship, on civic belonging. I think it's nonsense to say that liberalism is always, as it were, the chill of the, of the supermarket, right? <laughs> that, that's nonsense. That's a, that's a parody of liberalism. Now, this is very relevant to how we think about Europe because what it means is that, first of all, we have to recognize that yes, we still live in nations, and yes, a lot of our identity is still with the nations. So it's not Europe instead of the nations, right, as Robert Manasse argues. I think that's for the birds. But the secondly, we have lost the emotional identification with the European project, which we had in the post-war generations, traumatized by, you know, war, holocaust, gulag, dictatorship, and so on. So that one of my big projects now is to try and see how we might recover that sort of emotional identification with the European project in what I call the, the post-1989 generation. So maybe just to bring this discussion to an end, if we come back here in 30 years' time, yeah. <laughs> in 2049... The 60th anniversary of the revolutions. What do you think we'll be looking at then? So the one thing that 1989 should have taught us is we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, <laughs> yeah. let alone in 30 years' time. But having said that, I feel in my historically informed bones that we are going into a very, very difficult period, not because of the local and regional factors in because Europe, but global. because of those large global forces. I mean... We know from history that great power transitions are times of increased tension and usually of war. The British-American transition was the great exception to that rule because we were, you know, shared, had a shared culture. That, you've written about this yourself, Mark. I mean, that's not the case between the West and China. So that's a big one. Climate change is an absolutely enormous challenge which we are failing to address. I mean, on current trends, global warming will be three, four degrees above pre-industrial levels. And AI, we haven't begun to wake up to the challenge of AI. So that I think that we will be in very tough times. And my fundamental argument 
for hanging on to what we have in the European Union, including Britain staying in the European Union, is that I think that in that very challenging environment, Europe can very easily fall back into its bad old ways, the bad old ways of European barbarism. I mean, we saw it in former Yugoslavia, we've seen it in Ukraine. And so if you ask me honestly what my intellectual informed guesses, I think we will be in very dark times. But I always hang on to pessimism of the <laughs> intellect, optimism of the will. Okay, right. So it's a good place to end with the optimism of the will. I think we could have one more thing to do on the podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. And I think you can have a, a bookshelf full of Timothy Garton Ash <laughs> tomes to both look back at 1989 uh, and to to relive those extraordinary years after the the fall of the Berlin Wall, where the f- complexion and the map of Europe changed in such a dramatic way. So obviously, we'll start with the, the Magic Lantern, the Revolution of 1989, revised edition, which will bring it up to date. But you know, we can also look at the file, other books, uh, which somehow get. Europeans to reimagine and understand their own recent history in a completely different way. But apart from your books, Timothy, what would you recommend other people reading if they want to to go deeper into the question of 1989 and what it means now? So I think that we've already mentioned one book, Stephen uh, Stephen Holmes and Ivan Krastev's The Light That Failed is clearly an important book on this subject. I actually think you should go and look at a book or two of photographs. Because if you really want to recapture the creativity of Velvet Revolution, you have to go and look at the photographs. So I think that would be a really interesting one to look at. And then I do think that people should go back and read some Havel. I mean, Havel is a great intellectual politician of this period. And I think that if I was a young pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong today, I should be reading Harvard. The power of the powerless. The power of the powerless, but also the, the realism that lay behind that phrase, right? So that you keep nonviolent discipline, you have achievable goals, you're very strategic in how you pursue them. You're always looking to the people on the other side who in power, who could come over to your side. These are all incredibly important lessons for, you know, civil resistance movements around the world. Okay, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. We'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned, the entire oeuvre of Timothy Gartanash, <laughs> as well as the Holmes Krastev book and a selection of Harvard uh, literature. If you've enjoyed listening to podcasts, please do give us a review or rating on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on and do get in touch and, and tell us what you think about the, the podcast. You can write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Timothy Gartnash and Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Marlena Riedel.